The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. We're back. All right. Uh, anyway, I was saying this is, uh, this is a series that I'm more excited about than I think I've been about just about anything we've done in a long time. And uh, the reason for that is that it's, it's just such a great way of telling a story. Um, one of the reasons that we wanted to do this series was because uh, I think that there's a tendency within the church, and this was definitely true in my case, to grow up in the church if you did, and if you didn't, then you're kind of behind the eight ball on this anyway, but to grow up in the church and hear all these Bible stories and never have any concept of how they fit together. You may have heard me talk about this before, and in fact, I call it my flannel graph understanding of the Bible. Um, the flannel graphs that they had in my Sunday school were much smaller and less cool than this one, uh, but we did have flannel graphs, and all those little characters got slapped up on them in Sunday school every week, and I went all through Sunday school my whole life until I graduated from high school and entered college to pursue Christian ministry, never really understanding how these stories fit together. And when I was little, I just figured it was like some biblical version of Sesame Street. You know, Abraham lived here, and two houses down was where Moses' house was, and Peter and Jesus lived on this side of town, and sometimes they would come over for dinner at Abraham's house, and they might bring Zacchaeus with them. And, And so I just had this crazy concept that, you know, all these people, it all just happened in one time, you know, and that part of that was being young, but part of it was the way that it was taught. And so several years ago, when I was writing the first draft of a membership course that we still use in a much more mature form uh, here at Artisan, I decided uh, that not on my watch was anybody at a church I was pastoring at going to get through life, certainly not as a member, without understanding how these stories fit together. And so I incorporated in that class, and so those of you who have taken the class remember this, we do the whole of salvation history in like a couple of two-hour sessions. And if you've taken it very recently, we've distilled it down to one. Uh, and so this flannel graph series is really that writ large. And so we, we love the visuals, and let me say so many, I can't say enough words of thanks to Kathy for the great work that she's done on this stuff. Uh, if you see Kathy Bloody, give her a big flannel graph hug. Um, because this is really great. So uh, let's pick it up where we left off last week. And if you can see the board from last week, it's over here. Some of you over here may not be able to see it very well. But if you remember, we ended with Abraham and his son Isaac. And they, he had gone up to the mountain. And just at the last second, God had provided uh, an animal for sacrifice so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his own son. And the lesson, the moral last week, is don't go camping with your dad. it might end very badly. Uh, But God had promised Abraham that he would make, through Abraham, he would make Abraham the father of a great nation. And and how many of you grew up in Sunday school with that ridiculous Father Abraham song? You remember that? Father Abraham had many sons. You know it. Many sons had Father Abraham. Did he have daughters too? Guess we don't care. 
So let's just praise the Lord. So they don't mention the daughters, but the song, you know, goes on to talk about the sons and your right arm and left arm. It's very spiritual. Uh, and in fact, this week's content is just full of stories that birthed really awful songs for adults and children alike. And I will try to bring you through as many of those as I can uh, while we're here. And I'd also like to say at the outset that uh, Jason last week had to do a sermon on the first 22 chapters of Genesis, a very tall order. And so you consider the fact that that's less than half of the book of Genesis. And my job tonight is to finish Genesis, take you through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Uh, and so if I stumble around a little bit and don't seem as like at ease with it as Jason was, it's just because I got the short end of the stick on this one. And I have to fit all this stuff into like, uh, I don't know, I don't really want to say. But uh, we'll get you out of here at some point before uh, Cinderella turns back into a pumpkin or whatever. So um, Abraham and his son Isaac... So I want to give you a quick overview of how Abraham's family kind of unfolded and how God fulfilled this promise uh, that he made to Abraham. And through it all, we've got, uh, we've got the hand of God continuing to lead um, through the good and the bad. So Abraham's son was Isaac, and uh, when Isaac was uh, of age to become married, Abraham said, do not, do not choose from, from these Canaanite women your wife. I would like you to go back to the land of my fathers and find for yourself a wife there. And so Isaac, Abraham's son, returns to Abraham's homeland and finds a woman named Rebekah. And he marries Rebekah. And unfortunately, though, just like his mother, she is unable to bear children. She's barren. Uh, But Isaac prays to the Lord, and the Lord hears his prayer and grants his prayer uh, and be careful what you wish for, because she conceives with twins. And right from the start, in the womb, the Bible tells us they're, they're like fighting against each other. And there's a prophecy saying how they're going to be at odds with each other. And we'll see how that unfolds in a minute. But two boys born to Rebekah. First one was Esau. And the second one, says, came out gripping Esau's heel, like not without me you don't, was Jacob. And Jacob is the younger. Uh, Esau is described as a, a hairy red-haired man, so he's, uh, and he, he, was, he was a huntsman, and he worked in the fields, and his, he was his father's favorite, very burly type of guy. And uh, Jacob um, uh, played the clarinet, and uh, <laughs> well, they didn't have clarinets back then, but it, the Bible says that he was a quiet man who lived in tents, camping. It's intense. No. <laughs> So Jacob is born second, and he is his mother's favorite. So we, have, we already have this, this little tension setting up in this family. And Esau is being born first. Uh, even though they were twins, he came out first. So he's the elder of the two and therefore is entitled to the greater share of his father's inheritance. That is his birthright. Unfortunately, being born first didn't make him smart enough to hold on to it. And there was a time when he was working out in the fields, and he came home famished. And uh, Jacob was at home. He had just finished his etudes, and he was making some lentil, lentil soup, right? Probably had, like, tofu in it or something. But Esau um, says, I'm famished. Give me some of that red stuff, he called it, this, this, this stew that uh, Jacob had made. And Jacob's a smart fellow, and he says, well, okay, but first you have to sell me your birthright. Esau says, whatever, I'm going to die. Just give me some of the soup. And uh, he does. And Esau sacrificed his birthright for a cup of 
Campbell's chunky lentil soup. But we still have to see this worked out because you see Isaac, the father, doesn't know that this has happened yet. And so when it comes time for Isaac to die, he's gotten very old and he's blind. Uh, and he says to Esau, whom he still thinks is entitled to the, uh, the birthright, being the elder son, go out and, and kill something and make me a savory meal. You know, the kind of food I like. Make me some and bring it back to me and come to me and I will place my hands on you and, and, and give you your blessing. As soon as Esau leaves the house, Rebecca and Jacob start scheming. And they say, Rebecca says, go and find two goats, kill the goats. I will make the savory food. You make a costume. And so Jacob puts the skins of the goats on his body to make his arms seem very hairy. Apparently Esau was very hairy because goat skin uh, passed muster here. In this. And so he brings the, the food that his mother has made to his father Isaac and says, uh, it's me, Dad. It's Esau. I'm here for my blessing. And Isaac says, you sure? Because you sure sound like Jacob. Oh, no. Feel my arms. Feels the arms. There's the hair on the arms. And so he believes that this is Esau, and he bestows upon him the blessing entitled to the elder son. This is Genesis 27, by the way. And here's the blessing that he gives him. See if you recognize any of the words here. May God give you of the dew of heaven... And of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine, let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be anyone who curses you and blessed be anyone who, everyone who blesses you. Does that sound familiar at all? Did we talk last week about part of the promise to Abraham was those who bless you I will bless and those who curse you I will curse. And so Isaac has said this, repeated these words to his son. And he has blessed his younger son, thinking it's the elder. And so the promise given to Abraham descends through the line of Jacob rather than the line of Esau. It's very interesting to me that God apparently honors this trickery. Because that's how it it plays out. Now, Jacob uh, is eventually renamed Israel. He has this wrestling match with the angel. Remember this story? Uh, and he wrestles all night, and the, the angel hits him in the hip, and he has a limp. But the angel renames him Israel. And so henceforth, all the people of God, all the Hebrew people, the Jews, are known as Israelites. And uh, so it, when you hear somebody say, uh, quoting this passage or saying, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is what it means. The Israelites uh, descend through Jacob. And Jacob uh, also becomes old enough to marry and, like his father before him, returns to the land of his ancestors to find a wife. And in that land, he actually meets his mother's brother, Laban. uh, And Laban has two daughters, Rachel and Leah. Uh, Jacob is quite taken with Rachel and asks Laban for her hand in marriage. And Laban says, certainly you have her hand in marriage. You just have to work seven years for me in order to get it. And so he does, works seven years, they have a wedding feast, and apparently Jacob has too much champagne because he does not realize that when he goes to the marriage tent, Laban has sent Leah, not Rachel. And Jacob doesn't realize this until, how should we say this, until it's too late? Does that make sense? Am I, am I being clear enough? I know it's M for mature and all, but... 
the next morning, he, he does figure this out, and he's furious, and he says to Laban, you gave me the wrong woman, and Laban says, I know. <laughs> She's older. We had to marry her first. But if you would like to marry Rachel, just work another seven years, and, and she's all yours. And so uh, she must have been very pretty or, or had a great personality, or probably both, because Jacob is willing to work another seven years. And so 14 years after he leaves uh, his family, he returns from the land of his ancestors with not one, but two wives, Rachel and Leah. Uh, at this point, it probably won't surprise you to learn that Rachel is barren and is unable to have children. And so, uh, in an effort to fulfill this promise, uh, she sends him in to Leah and says, have a child with Leah. And so, uh, Jacob does, has a couple actually. Rachel begins to get a little bit jealous, and so she, like, uh, like Jacob's grandmother, says, here, take my maid and lie with her and have a child with her. Because she wants part of this blessing to kind of come from her side of the, uh, of the house. And so Jacob does uh, and conceives with uh, Rachel's maid. And then Leah, who is now past the age of childbearing, grows jealous. And she sends her maid in to Jacob. And so Jacob has now, now had 11 sons, none of them by Rachel. Uh, and finally, God opens Rachel's womb, it says, and uh, she has a son. And the son's name is Joseph. Joseph immediately becomes his father's favorite, not only because he was the only son born to his favorite wife, but also because, as the Bible tells us, he was the son of Jacob's old age. You know how grandparents are generally much like more cuddly with, the, with their grandkids than they ever were with their own kids? I, I have a five-year-old son now, and I, I see this. Uh, my parents were great to me. I'm, not, I don't, I'm, I'm very, very lucky and blessed. I'm not joking at all. They were wonderful to me. But, I, but they still, when they see Abel, it's like, oh, Abel, you know. So uh, Jacob had the good fortune to have a very young child when he was grandfatherly in age. Um, and so Joseph is the favorite. Uh, and here he is with, with some of his brothers, not all of them, but some of them. And uh, as a token of his father's profound love, he receives a special coat. Now, we, we probably know all of this, uh, know this mostly as the coat of many colors. Um, actually, a better translation appears nowadays would be a, just a coat with long sleeves, but that's not nearly as interesting, so let's just go with the coat <laughs> of many colors. Uh, and of course, there's all kinds of horrible songs that were written about the coat of many colors because of one of the worst musicals ever written. <laughs> which I still can't get out of my head like three years after hearing it for the first and last time. Uh, but Joseph and Sons, you know, you, if, you've, if you've heard the Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know those songs. So there's Joseph with his brothers. And his brothers uh, are extremely jealous of, his, of the favor he has with his father. And uh, to make matters worse, Joseph has dreams. Now, if you ever have dreams like this, just do yourself a favor and write them down in your dream journal and close the book and never mention them to your brothers. Uh, but the first dream he has is that he's out with all his brothers gathering or binding up grain, sheaves of grain. And he says, and my sheaf of grain just grew so big and all of your grain sheaves just bowed down to it. And the, these brothers who also already don't like him are like, yeah, that sounds like a great dream, Joseph. Oh, and I had another dream. Oh, did you? 
Let's hear it. And so the second dream is uh, he's a star in the sky, and all the other stars, uh, these, these 11 other stars, and the sun and the moon, representing his parents, also bow down to his star. Uh, and so now, in addition to infuriating his brothers, he, he's kind of not in very good graces with his parents, uh, because this is not the kind of thing that happens in this culture when the 17-year-old suddenly expects the rest of the family to bow down to him. Uh, and so these brothers decide to take matters into their own hands, and they're out one day with Joseph, and they strip him of his special coat, and they throw him into the well, into a well, into a pit, the text actually says, but don't you think the well is much more interesting? Um, <laughs> And they take that special coat and they kill an animal and they pour its blood all over the, the coat. And they take it back to their father and they say, gee, dad, I'm really sorry, but our bonehead brother has died. And Jacob is crushed and in mourning. And the brothers think that they've rid themselves of this rival for good. But they haven't. Because some traders go by the pit and they see Joseph and they pull him up out of the pit. Good news, right? Except that they did it to sell him into slavery. Can you put me back in the pit? No, we're going to sell you into slavery. So they bring him. Where do they bring him? They bring him to Egypt. And we'll put the pyramids right up here in the middle of the sky uh, because the aliens have not yet finished Uh, putting them into the sand, also to save space, but I like the alien story better. (laughs) And uh, Joseph is sold into the house of a fairly high-ranking official in the king of Egypt's court, and the the official's name is Potiphar. And Joseph immediately uh, distinguishes himself and before long has been appointed the overseer of Potiphar's entire household, which would be good news except for the fact that Potiphar's wife is quite taken with him, and she makes a pass at him. Um, And I don't think it involved writing a note asking him to circle whether or not he liked her. It was a little more direct than that, and he refused. He said no. Later, she did the same thing again, and he refused again. And now she's not only amorous, but dejected. And that's a bad combination. And she grabs him by the robe, And he immediately flees the scene, leaving his robe robe behind. And so when Potiphar comes home, she's got his robe and she says, Do you see, do you know what that Hebrew you brought into our house has done to me? I've got his coat right here. I bet you can read between the lines. And Potiphar reads between the lines, not to the truth, but to what she wants him to believe about Joseph. And Potiphar has Joseph thrown into jail. Now, while he is in jail, he meets two servants of the pharaoh, of the king. Um, And these two men have had dreams, and he interprets their dreams for them accurately to the good of one and to the detriment of the other because the the one's dream was that he would, meant that he would be executed, and the other's dream meant that he would be set free and returned to the pharaoh's court. Uh, And so... The one is executed and the other is returned to the Pharaoh's court and Joseph continues to rot in jail for a time until the Pharaoh, uh, who for our purposes tonight will be played by uh, Steve Martin. (laughs) 
Pharaoh has a dream. Can you guys see that? Yeah. Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret. And all of his, uh, all the people who, who practice divination in his court and all his magicians, nobody can tell him what these dreams mean. Uh, and until that servant says to him, ah, when I was in prison, there was a Hebrew man who interpreted my dream. Maybe we should call him up. And so they call Joseph up out of prison. Pharaoh tells him the dreams, and Joseph interprets them correctly. Here's what they meant. What they meant was that Egypt was to go, undergo seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And he said, so king, you must store as much food as you can during the years of plenty so that you can tide yourself through and over to the, the, through the, t- the uh, seven years of famine. And in fact, there'll be people who want to come and, and take food from you uh, and buy it from you during that period. So you should stock it up. And the Pharaoh uh, sees that the interpretation is true, and he starts putting this plan into place, and he appoints Joseph to higher and higher positions in his court uh, until, the, until when we get to the period of famine, Joseph is actually the one who is overseeing the distribution of food to the people who have nothing because they didn't stock any food during the years of plenty. And who do you suppose came to the Pharaoh's court to ask for food but the brothers, Joseph's brothers, come, and they don't recognize him, and it's kind of a fun story where they, they have some back and forth, and he tricks them and makes it look like one of them stole something. And, uh, but eventually, this leads to the happy reunion of Joseph with his brothers and his father and mother. Uh, the reunion was happy for a time, and the family actually because the famine had not yet, not yet passed, they decided to settle in Egypt. And so these 12 brothers who become, by the way, the, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you ever hear that term, the 12 tribes of Israel, it's just the descendants of each of these brothers. Uh, and so they, they become temporary citizens of Egypt, which is all well and good while the Steve Martin Pharaoh is ruling the land. Because Joseph has found favor with him. But after he dies, the new Pharaoh, who is this? Is this Yul, Yul, what's his name? Yeah, he's mean, right? He's like not a good Pharaoh. Um, and to, to drive this point home even more, uh, I had Kathy make a goatee for him. He's like the evil Pharaoh. You remember the evil Dr. Spock? Had a goatee? We'll see if that stays up. So the evil Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph from Adam. (laughs) Oh, that's bad. That's bad. But he doesn't know Joseph. All he knows is that there's this new nation of people, the Hebrew people, who are populating his country. And they're growing fast. And he is concerned. And so he puts in place a really terrible plan to stop the growth of the Israelite people. He tells all the midwives of Egypt, when a Hebrew woman gives birth, if it's a girl, let her live. If it's a boy, kill him during childbirth. Now, I don't know how many midwives you've ever talked to. I've never yet met a midwife that could, could possibly do that, even if the nastiest king in the world suggested that she do. 
Our son was uh, birthed by a midwife, and, and she was lovely. Um, so Pharaoh was not, he apparently had never met a, a midwife before. Uh, and of course, they refused to do this. And, and the excuse that they come up with is rather interesting. They say, gee, King, these Hebrew women give birth fast. They call for us, and before we even get there, they've given birth. Uh, Pharaoh, apparently having skipped Lamaze class uh, when his wife was pregnant, buys this excuse and comes up with a plan B, which is even more terrible, if you can believe it. And what he says is, to all the people of Egypt, if you find a Hebrew boy, throw him into the Nile. It's pretty terrible. But this is his plan to stop the growth of the Jews. And so in the midst of this plan, uh, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi, one of the brothers of Joseph was named Levi, and so these, these are Levites, uh, which eventually becomes the priestly tribe of Israel, uh, in part of because of the story I'm about to tell you. Um, the man and the woman from the tribe of Levi give birth to a son. And the text is very funny here. It says, the woman, seeing that he was a fine baby, uh, which is kind of funny because I've never yet met a woman who didn't think her new baby was, like, fine, right? Um, but seeing that he was a fine baby and, and not wanting him to meet the fate of all Hebrew boys, made a basket of reeds and set him afloat uh, into the Nile River. This was a long shot to be sure, but it was probably better than, uh, than the alternative. Let me go over here for a while so you guys can see better. I'm going to block your view now. So Moses is floating along in the river, and who should see him but the daughter of the king? Pharaoh's daughter sees the baby in the basket, and she pulls him up out of the river and names him Moses, which means, you know, pulled it out or pulled him out or something like that. And who should observe this whole event but Moses' older sister? She's watching. And Pharaoh's daughter pulls the baby out and decides that she wants to keep the baby, and so Moses' sister, ever the opportunist, opportunist, runs over and says, I see that you'd like to, to take this Hebrew baby for your own. Would you like me to find a Hebrew woman for you who could nurse the baby and raise him up? And Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And so Moses is taken back to his own mother to be raised until the time that he returns to uh, the Pharaoh's court to be raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. And it's, it's after he's grown... Um, to adulthood, uh, young adulthood, that he sees an Egyptian man oppressing a Hebrew man. And his anger is fueled to the extent that he kills the Egyptian man and looks around to see if anybody's watching and buries him and thinks that he's gotten away with it until a little while later when he sees two Hebrew men arguing and he tries to get between them and stop them from fighting and they say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian man? And that's when they know, that, that's when he knows that the story is out. And when word reaches the Pharaoh, Moses has to, has to flee. So Moses is on the lamb and goes to Midian. And uh, we have Moses over here. This was, uh, I believe, a few years before he became the president of the NRA. Um, <laughs> there's Moses with his staff. Uh, and Moses is tending his flock... 
And here's, here's what it says. This is uh, Exodus 3, if I recall. 3, 1 through 5, I think. Moses led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God goes on to say to Moses that he's ready to, to lead his people out of, the promise, or out, of the, out of Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses hems and haws, and he really doesn't want any part of this, and he, he makes excuses, and he, he says, I stutter, I don't know how to speak well, and I don't even know what your name is. What, I mean, what should I tell them when they ask me, which God is it that wants me to let these people go? And God says something very interesting. He, he's, he, tells, he says, tell them that I am what I am. I am who I am might also be translated, I will be who I will be. It's a very interesting title that God takes for himself here. Who are you, God? I am who I am. What business do you have with these, he- these Hebrew people? I am who I am. And if you've ever see- heard the name Yahweh used, Yahweh is, is just a, a, the Hebrew, it's a variant on the Hebrew verb to be. So I am. You hear God referred to as the great I am. This is where it comes from. Um, a very simple and powerful name, I am. And it's also uh, less common, uh, Yahweh is less common. What you're more likely to see in your text is the words, the Lord, with all caps, the Lord in all caps, that's, uh, that's this name, Yahweh. But Moses is afraid, and, and, he, and he makes these excuses. He says, I don't know how to speak uh, and maybe he had a speech defect or something. We don't know for sure. Uh, but God is angry with him. And he says, if you won't do it on your own, then I'll bring your brother Aaron in to help you. And so they have this system where God tells Moses what to tell Aaron. And Aaron tells the Pharaoh what God said. It's like some divine game of telephone, right? <laughs> By the end of it, they don't know who God thinks is cute from school or something. But <laughs> God thinks we're all cute. <laughs> and so Moses and Aaron work together, and they go into Pharaoh, and here comes probably the worst children's song of all time. You know what it is, right? Who's going to sing it for me? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, you guys don't want to sing that, oh, baby? Oh, baby, let my people go. <laughs> what an awful song. It's, to the, it's just like Louie Louie, except terrible. <laughs> So Moses and Aaron are uh, they prevailing upon the Pharaoh. Let God's people go. And Pharaoh refuses. And they, they kind of have this back and forth where Moses and Aaron will do a sign and then Pharaoh will have his magicians, his court magicians, uh, by whatever cult practices or whatever, do the same sign. And so Aaron throws the staff on the ground and it turns to a snake. And the Pharaoh says, oh, I can do that. And the magicians throw their staffs on the ground and they turn to snakes. Um, of course, then 
Aaron's snake eats all their other snakes up. But still, that's, um, you know, Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go and refuses. And so, God visits upon the Egyptian people a series of terrible plagues. The first plague is that he turns the, the water in the river Nile to blood. And so there's a smell and the fish die and all the things that you know happen when water turns to blood. Um, and Pharaoh seems like he's going to relent and then changes his mind. And so there's a series of, of nine more plagues, ten in all, uh, and I have them all visually represented here. Whereby God tries to convince the Pharaoh to let his people go. And so the first plague is, is frogs. And there are frogs everywhere. There's frogs in their beds and frogs in their pots. Uh, and not the kind that you make frog legs from. And they're all over everything. And the, the plagues continue with gnats and flies and uh, mad cow disease, where all the livestock dies. Some of these plagues do not affect the Israelites, and some of them do. It's really interesting to see. If you have time sometime, go through and study this. Um, it's Exodus, like, uh, maybe 10 through 12. And uh, you can see how these plagues uh, affect the Israelites sometimes and other times don't. Uh, and then painful boils that can't be healed on the skin. And hail. And if hail wasn't enough, also fire. It destroys the crops and locusts that come and take what's left. And days of darkness where the sun doesn't show. And finally, the most terrible plague of all. God says, if you will not let my people go, I'm going to go through Egypt. And I'm going to kill every firstborn in every household. From the Pharaoh's firstborn to the firstborn child of the female slave grinding in the mill and everyone in between. And the way that the Israelites are spared from this plague is by a ritual that God instructs Moses to tell the people to do. He has them slaughter a lamb and prepare it in a special way and then sprinkle the blood on the doorposts and over the lintel. And so when God goes through Egypt and in every house kills that firstborn, when he sees the blood on the doorpost, he passes over that house. And so this is the origin of uh, the most sacred Jewish holiday, Passover. Well, this is uh, obviously a terrible, terrible plague. And Pharaoh finally allows the Israelites to leave. He says, I do not want your terrible God here anymore. Take what you want and go. And the Israelites leave. <clears throat> it doesn't take long, however, before Pharaoh, who's a very stubborn man, decides that he doesn't want to let them go after all. And he pursues them for real, uh, with chariots. And I think that, I, th- I, sorry, I, didn't, uh, I think it's 600 chariots he sends out after the Israelite people. And the Israelite people, having just experienced this 
I, would, I think you would agree, rather shocking series of miracles and plagues and being freed from slavery, the first time they hear the wheels of a chariot, off in the distance, they start to grumble and complain. And this is a trend that we'll see for the rest of the time that we're going to cover tonight. Here's the first, the first complaint. He says, they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? They're, they're very dramatic. But God saves them from these pursuing Egyptians. And he tells Moses, stand on the shores of the Red Sea and place your staff and the waters will part. And so they do. And the Israelites pass through on dry land. And the Egyptians in their horses and chariots, when trying to pursue them through the sea, uh, the waters collapse on them. And the Israelites are spared and they make it to the other side. By the way, we call this the Red Sea. It's probably the Sea of Reeds. It's another kind of translation mistake similar to the, the one with the coat. But just like with the coat, we're used to the Red Sea and it sounds kind of cooler, so we'll go with the Red Sea. But the Red Sea parts, and they come through on the other side. And Moses sings this song, which uh, you, you probably can guess by now. We turned it into a children's song, uh, even though it's fairly morbid. Do you know this song uh, that he sings after they go through the Red Sea? I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider thrown into the sea. Whoopee! <laughs> Do you guys know that song? Did you sing that at camp? Good. <laughs> That seems just like, woo, why would we make six-year-olds sing that? Um, the church, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> so the people are in the wilderness. They've passed through the Red Sea. And um, we have a series now of stories where they complain and God provides. And they complain some more and God provides. And they complain some more and God provides. It starts almost immediately with their need for food. And this, hear this. This is like, I told you they're dramatic. Exodus 16.3. If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. Remember how great it was in Egypt? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Uh, and so God, Moses Moses brings the, this concern to God and he provides for them, first with some quails and then, then he provides this special bread that falls from heaven every night and gives them this special, uh, a certain way of gathering this. Every morning they were to gather just enough for their household and if they tried to hoard any more, it would spoil. Uh, if they tried to get any for the next day, it would spoil and they had to work every morning to get it. Except on the, the day before the Sabbath when they would harvest a double portion, and it wouldn't spoil so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath day. Uh, and so for 40 years in the wilderness, they subsist on this bread. This was before the uh, low-carb uh, thing happened, uh, and none of them got fat. But, uh, so he provides the bread for them, and, and not long after they had this sticky bread, you can guess that they started complaining about the lack of water. And so Moses says to them, they need water now. What should I do? And, and the Lord says, what you should do is go to the rock that I'll tell you, take your staff and strike the rock, and out of it water will pour. 
and they can drink the water. And so Moses does that, and water comes out, and they're satisfied again until the next time they get thirsty and the rock isn't there anymore. And they say, we're thirsty again. And Moses says, Lord, what should I do now? And the Lord gives them different instructions this time and says, this time, stand by the rock and hold your staff, but speak to the rock and the water will come out. But Moses uh, is feeling his leader of God's people, Oates, at this point. And he's angry with them. And and maybe he thought it would be a, a more dramatic gesture to slam his staff into that rock like the first time. And so that's what he does, and the water comes out, and the people are given water, but God is very angry with Moses, and he tells him, you may have led my people out of Egypt, but you are no longer going to be the one to lead them into the promised land, and they're going to wander until you die. And so Moses has to prepare uh, a, a successor to lead God's people. The other uh, really famous story that happens in the wilderness is the, the uh, remember the story of the serpents in the wilderness? Have we talked about this recently here? Um, a, a pestilence, these, these poisonous serpents come into the camp and they are biting people and everybody who is bitten by the snake, these snakes dies. And so Moses prays to the Lord and says, what shall we do about these snakes? And the Lord says, cast a bronze image of a snake and put it on a pole and Put it up in the center of camp, and if anyone is bitten, he just needs to look to the pole and the snake, and he will be saved. Uh, He'll be made well again. And sure enough, that's what happens. And we we would talk about this story a lot when we um, refer to it from a New Testament passage where uh, the comparison is made to Jesus. And it says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And uh, if you think about Jesus' crucifixion, on a pole, you know, a cross, but on a pole um, on the hill. And it's to him that we look to be saved, not from snake bites, but from our own sin. Unless you count that snake, in which case we might make that comparison. So, <clears throat> the other thing that happens while they're in the wilderness is, is God begins to give more details about how his people should interact with him. And a big part of this is it happens at Mount Sinai. Um, and so God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain and says, everybody else must wait at the base of the mountain. And uh, the, cl- the clouds descend, and Moses speaks to God in the cloud on the mountain. And it's there that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. These commandments are written on a stone tablet. There they are. They're not actually as big as the mountain probably, but... Um, now, you also see after the Ten Commandments are given, and I won't read those to you, but it's, if, you, if you couldn't rattle them off from memory, maybe you should read them tonight. It's kind of an interesting um, little exercise. But uh, you also see the beginnings of the full Mosaic Law because the Lord also gives Moses some instructions on um, how people should worship and how they should keep their calendar uh, and what the social standards are for, for their community. Uh, and you get much more detail about that Mosaic Law, which, um, which is more complicated than just Ten Commandments, uh, in the book of Leviticus. And uh, I told you we'd cover Leviticus tonight, and I just did. Um, <coughs> we just don't have time to go into all that. Um, now, but, but one thing I would like you to note is how these rules tend to expand as we prove ourselves unable to follow them. How many rules in the Garden of Eden? One. Didn't do so well with that. 
How many rules on the stone tablets? Ten. And, you know, eventually we have these 613 mosaic laws about anything and everything you could imagine. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's because that would be helpful or if, it, or if it's because it, would, it's, it does a, an even clearer job of showing us how incapable we are of obedience uh, <clears throat> on our own power. But Moses is actually on Mount Sinai for quite a long time, and the Israelites grow restless below. And, you know, they're, they've already proven themselves not to be the most patient people in the world. And, and so they say, I don't know, we don't know if Moses is ever coming back. And they, they say to his brother Aaron, all the nations around us have gold and silver gods that they bow down to and worship. Make for us an idol that we can worship because apparently the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has, you know, abandoned us because Moses is clearly not coming back anytime soon. Um, and so Aaron collects all their, their jewelry and, and melts it down and makes this bronze, uh, <clears throat> this golden calf. The snake was bronze. Um, and so they're, they're surrounding this thing and worshiping it and bowing down to it, just like their pagan neighbors. Uh, and that's the time when Moses comes down from the mountain. And he sees this act of disobedience. And he's furious. And he, he throws the stone tablets on the ground and they... They rip into, they don't rip, the paper rips, but they, they would have broken into, I imagine. Uh, and he's furious. Once again, the people have shown that they don't have a whole lot of pluck when it comes to following their God or following the leader that God has appointed. Uh, and so eventually, uh, God lets Moses rewrite these on a different one, and they're repaired. <coughs> Uh, and the other, the other way that God sort of explains the type of interaction that his people are to have with them is in the acts of worship. And so the first part of that is, is this, um, the Ark of the Covenant, which is a, a box, gold box. And uh, it's, it's where God's presence is localized. And there's very specific instructions about how it's to be made and what's to be stored inside it. Um, it's, but it's, it's the localized presence of God among the, the people of Israel. And it, they, they, they keep it all through the time in the wilderness, and then they put it in the temple when they finally do settle um, permanently in the promised land. Uh, and then the Nazis tried to steal it. And uh, <coughs> uh, Indy and his girlfriend were tied up. And uh, I don't remember the reference for that, but I'll get it afterward if you wonder. <coughs> So they're still a nomadic people at this point. So they have not built the temple yet. And so their worship hall is the tabernacle, which is basically a tent of meeting. And the Ark of the Covenant is placed inside, and the uh, people are led by this pillar of clouds, uh, by the clouds by, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And uh, if they wake up and the clouds are moving, then they follow it. And if it stops, that's where they set up camp. And this is portable. They can bring it down and put it back up. And um, <clears throat> everywhere they stop, they set up the tabernacle and put the ark in it. And, and they worship that way. Now, the last really significant thing that happens in the wilderness is... Uh, probably the most disturbing part of the whole Bible, if you ask me. To be perfectly honest with you, this is the most troubling thing um, I can point you to in the entire Bible. And so you may think that I'm dodging it because I'm winding up here and I'm not going to talk about it at any length, but it's really just not 
and we have to get through this story. Um, but the, what I'm talking about is the fact that at all points through this wandering, the Israelites are at war with their neighbors. And when they, enter, when they do enter the promised land, it's by conquest and behind the sword. And so maybe sometime in the future we can do a sermon or a series of sermons on this really challenging idea uh, that, that God's people apparently were warmongers in, at times and uh, really this Canaanite genocide essentially that happens when they, when they enter the promised land. So I'm representing it here because I don't want you to think I'm pretending it doesn't exist, but we really can't go um, into it much more than what I've just done. And so Moses uh, nears the time of his death, and he transfers power to Joshua. Joshua is one of Israel's warriors. And Joshua is appointed the new leader of the Hebrew people. And on the cusp of the promised land, just before Moses dies, he calls the, the whole nation together, and he gives them, he recites for them the history of what has gone on over the previous 40 years and, and the, the work that God has done. And you, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy just means second law. It's a lot of the same stuff that's in Exodus and Numbers. Um, it's just Moses retelling it on the cusp of the promised land before he dies. And this is a tradition that, that God's people do even nowadays where we retell the story of God's interaction with our lives and God's leadership and God's love and God's law. In fact, that's why we celebrate communion every week. It's a retelling, a reenactment of the story of Jesus, of his death and resurrection. And worship as a whole, speaking as a, a, a ministerial academic here, ought to be a reenactment of the gospel story every week. Now, if you, if you don't see that happening, maybe look a little closer first, but if, if you still don't see it happening, you ought to talk to one of us because if we're not we're not retelling the, the story of, uh, of salvation in our worship gatherings, then we're missing the point. Uh, but Moses does this on the cusp of the promised land, retells the whole story for the people and tells them, you know, bind God's word to your head and to your wrists and keep it close to you. And, and uh, the Shema Israel, the hero, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, is come, comes from Deuteronomy. Um, so some of the most famous and significant uh, parts of Jewish history comes from that book. And so Joshua has taken leadership of the uh, Israelites, and he leads them in across the Jordan and into the Promised Land, uh, where they conquer the people who are there, uh, and they have finally arrived. After all these years and all this grumbling and complaining and all this provision by God and all this revelation from God, they have finally arrived in the land that God promised to Abraham when he said, I'll make of you a great nation. And they reside there, and Joshua leads them until the time of his death. And that's where we'll leave it for this week, because the death of Joshua creates a very interesting leadership vacuum for the Israelite people. And when we pick it up with week three next week, Jason will be speaking again, and he's going to talk about the judges and the kings and how, how uh, this went well at times and not so well more often, and how people's just endless striving for somebody to be their king um, plays out. Uh, and you'll, you'll see that kind of come to its ultimate fruition uh, when we get to Advent, which is why we, why we timed it this way. So this is the story. 
most of the Pentateuch, most of the first five books of the Bible, and, and, and uh, very quickly the book of Joshua as well. Now, you may have noticed that I didn't make any spiritual lessons or I didn't have three points or any alliteration or anything like that for you tonight. Uh, and we did that intentionally because we want these stories to preach on their own. After all, that's what church was for these people. They would just retell the story of God. Uh, and so that's what we've tr- tried to do in this series. Um, that being said, I would like to make one very quick theological sort of observation, and it's this. Have you noticed throughout all of last week's stories and all of this week's stories how God works in and through his people in spite of their repeated desire and attempts to screw it up any way they can possibly imagine to do so. You have, forget all the scripts that happened in week one, but just limiting, limiting it to this week, Jacob messing up the whole plan when he steals his brother's birthright, or Joseph's brothers hatching that despicable plot to throw him into the pit, and he ends up in a foreign land, and God works through that. Moses, who doubts himself at every opportunity, from the very beginning, hems and haws about his leadership role, and yet at the end of uh, the story of Moses, he is described as the greatest prophet the Jewish people have ever known. The Israelites themselves, and they're nonstop complaining. Do you see yourself in any of these stories? Do you ever sort of take matters into your own hands because you don't think God's doing it right? Are you ever impatient with the way he's providing for you? Do you ever doubt that he could actually use you in the first place? Well, take some comfort in the fact that all of God's people have always done all of those things. And ultimately, that is the story of the Christian faith. That we, by our own power and strength and ability, can't be right with God. We can't make it right on our own. And it's in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, and by faith in that fact, that we are made right with Him. And so, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll open our communion table. Uh, And if you would like to come take communion, we have an open table here for anybody who's following Jesus. Uh, If you would like to be part of the reenactment of His death and resurrection, I would love to have you participate in that. Just tear off a piece of the bread. We have two cups, both wine and juice, whatever would be more appropriate for you and your family. And take that in remembrance, but also as an act of retelling that story. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these stories that we have heard tonight and for the fact that they're stories of gross imperfection because that's the type of thing we see in ourselves every day. And we would pray tonight that by faith in your Son, Jesus, we would be made right with you And we would be strengthened to do your work and to follow you, not by our strength, but by your grace. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we trust. Amen. Communion table will be...
open for the rest of our time tonight. We're going to sing a little bit more together. Uh, You can come whenever you're ready. Uh, And if you'd like to get up close and personal with the flannel graph after the service, you're welcome to do that too. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.